And I'd like you to follow along with me. Luke chapter 7. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 29 through 35. Just a, a, a brief section of Luke's gospel. I'm going to read the passage. I encourage you to follow along as I read it. And I'm going to begin in verse 29. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 29. Luke writes, And when all the people, including the tax collectors, heard this, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John's baptism. But since the Pharisees and experts in the law had not been baptized by him, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. To what then should I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to each other. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't weep. For John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And so you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Let's pray. Father, as always, we ask that you would give us understanding. And God, more than understanding, that you would prepare our hearts to not only comprehend, but to receive what it is that you would say to us this morning. God, open your word to us and open our hearts to your word. We ask that you'd work in this time. And we pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I hope you remember our context to make sense of what it says here, uh, that when all the people heard this, that they, that they acknowledged the way of God's righteousness. To understand what it is that's going on here, we have to remember what they heard. Remember earlier in chapter 7, John the Baptist, who had been the one who at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry had been pointing people to Jesus. Oh, but now earlier in chapter 7, uh, we, we see that John isn't so sure anymore. Oh, he had been pointing people to Jesus. Remember John chapter 1, there in verse 29, it says, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John had no doubt then, but it seems that he wasn't so sure anymore. And so he sends a question to Jesus. And basically he asks him, Was I right? Was I right to point to you? Are you the one? And Jesus sends word back to John in a bit of a roundabout way. But his basic message is this. Yes, I am the one. You were my messenger, my forerunner, and I am the Messiah. And so we pick up this morning in verse 29, when all the people heard what Jesus said, when they heard him say that he was the Messiah, uh, that all the people, including the tax collectors, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized by John's baptism. So Luke tells us that since they had heard and accepted and responded to John's message, the people, the tax collectors, the sinners, they now heard, accepted, and responded to Jesus. Remember, both 
John and Jesus had been calling God's people to repentance, to turn from their sin, to humble themselves before God. Uh, Listen to just how united John and Jesus' messages were. In Matthew chapter 3, Matthew tells us John's message. He says this, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Then, in the next chapter, in Matthew chapter 4, he tells us what Jesus' message was. Matthew writes there, From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Hey, they were declaring exactly the same message. And so, of course, those who responded to John would also respond to Jesus. And, of course, the opposite was true. Those who rejected John, well, they would be prone to rejecting Jesus as well. Verse 30, But since the Pharisees and the experts in the law had not been baptized by John, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. So, conversely, the religious leaders, they had rejected John. They had rejected his message. So, of course, they also rejected Jesus. Notice something here. They rejected John. And they rejected Jesus. You see, when God compels us to himself, he does so with love, not with force. God chooses the way of love. What he wants is our willing surrender. He wants us to choose, to surrender to him. And so he draws us. He calls us. He offers his love to us. But we must respond. So let me ask you this. Have you responded? Have you received the love of Christ? Have you surrendered yourself to the Lord? That's what he wants more than anything else. Well, how do you respond? What does that look like? How do you you take on God's way of righteousness as it talks about here in our text? Well, what is that way of righteousness? Well, I think it begins with John and Jesus' message. Uh, Remember, both John and Jesus had been declaring a message of repentance. So God's way of righteousness, the way of salvation, it's a path of, of repentance, of humility. It begins with us admitting our need, our sinfulness, our brokenness. 1 John chapter 1, there in verses 8 and 9, it describes it so well for us. There John writes this, he says, if we say we have no sin, if we, if we say, hey, this isn't a problem for me, I've got this nailed, I'm doing fine. If we say we have no sin, John says, we are deceiving ourselves. Notice we're not deceiving anyone else. Everyone else can see right through, they can see that we have issues. But we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what's the other option? Well, look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, if we agree with God that we are broken and sinful, he is faithful 
and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Dear friends, if we will confess our sin, if we will admit our need for forgiveness, then Jesus will forgive us and he will cleanse us. He'll wash away our sin and he'll give us something that we could have no other way. He will clothe us with his righteousness. He will give us a state of purity that we could never achieve on our own. He forgives and he cleanses. But we have to come to him. We have to turn to him. We must repent and seek his forgiveness and his cleansing. That's the path, the way of God's righteousness. It's a way of humility. You know, it's also a way of submission or of surrender. It's odd, but I would say that the, the issue, the concept of submitting ourselves to God is both assumed and understated by Scripture. Submission to God is something that I would say is somewhat assumed by Scripture. Have you noticed that there are surprisingly few uh, just plain commands uh, telling us to submit ourselves to God? Oh, there are some, but there, there are surprisingly few of them. It could be because if we truly recognize Him as God, if we comprehend that he is our creator and we are his creation, if we call him Lord, then our submission to him should just be built in. It should be automatic to that concept. And yet today and in our world, we seem to have lost that. We need to submit ourselves to the Lord. Submission is not only assumed by scripture, but it is also a concept that I would say is, an underst is understated in Scripture. Uh, what, what you and I are called to is not just submission, but really it's worship. It's worship. It isn't just doing what God says, but it's, it's living in order to do what God says. It isn't just obeying the rules but it's allowing God himself to define our very being. Listen to how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 12. It isn't just towing the line. He says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of the mercies of God, it, remembering what God has done for us, because of what God has done for us, I urge you, he says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. To give yourself over as a living sacrifice, that's more than just obedience. That's truly worship of the highest order. He says that when we do that, that is something that is holy and pleasing to God. That is our true worship of God. When we live our lives given over to God, when we give our lives as a sacrificial gift to the Lord, to the point that we can, we can say, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. It's not me anymore, but now I live this life for Christ. 
You see, Jesus doesn't ask us to become a member of his club. He doesn't ask us to agree with what he says. He, he's not after our admiration. It's much greater than that. It's much bigger, much grander. He is our God. He is our God, and so he and he alone deserves every bit of our worship. He is worthy of our complete and unqualified submission. And remember, Jesus made it quite clear back in chapter 6 that he doesn't want just theoretical or merely symbolic lordship over our lives. Remember what he said to his followers back in chapter 6 there in verse 46? He asked them, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you say the words, but you don't do the things that I say? You see, Jesus wants us amidst the reality of our daily lives to obey him, to live for him. And for many of us, that's the rub. That's where we get hung up because many don't want to obey Jesus. What they really want, if they're honest, is for Jesus to obey them. Uh, look at verse 31. To what then should I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to each other, we played the flute for you, we played a happy song and you didn't dance. And we sang a lament, we sang a mournful song, but you didn't weep. Like fickle children arbitrarily calling first for dancing and then for weeping, Jesus says that is what this generation is like. That is what the religious leaders who rejected him were like. Whether they were being called to repentance by John or by Jesus, they found a reason to dismiss that challenge. Look at what Jesus gives as an explanation for this comparison he makes. Uh, look at verse 33. For John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine. And you say, he has a demon. So John, being a Nazarite from birth, he, he lived under a vow to never eat grapes, never drink wine. He lived in the wilderness. He wore coarse clothing of camel's hair. He ate locusts and honey for his food. He lived apart from the community. And so the religious leaders looked at him and went, man, that guy, he is too radical. He is too severe. And they rejected him. But they rejected Jesus too. Jesus, who seemed to fit in far better than John did. In verse 34, look at this. The son of man has come eating and drinking. Oh, John didn't, but Jesus did. But they don't accept Jesus. They reject him as well. They say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus went to wedding celebrations, even a banquet at Matthew's house. He was often reaching out to tax collectors and sinners. And the religious leaders rejected him too, for the very opposite reason that they rejected John. Now, just to be clear, John did not have a demon, and Jesus was not a glutton or a drunkard, nor did he encourage tax collectors and sinners in their sin. Rather, he called them to repentance, and they heard him. 
and they responded to him. They obeyed. You see, the religious leaders were just looking for excuses. Here's something I've learned. Those who have a critical heart will always find something to criticize. And usually, usually that criticism isn't even about what it is that they say it's about. Usually, it's a power play. Those of us, yeah, I'm in that group, unfortunately. Those of us who are critical by nature, quite often, the thing behind our proclivity to criticize is our desire to stay in control. You see, if I find fault with you, with what you're doing or what you're saying or what you're wearing, then I can reject your message and do what I want to do instead. I think clearly that's what we see going on in our passage here. The religious leaders are finding fault with John and then they find fault with Jesus for the opposite thing. And it's all so that they will have an excuse to reject the call to repentance that both John and Jesus are giving. Makes me think of two things that we should then consider. First of all, I think we need to ask, do we do that? Do we find excuses to reject the message of God? Do we look at the messenger in order to discredit the message? And secondly, are we giving others a good excuse to reject Jesus when we proclaim him? Let's think about each of those for a second. First, are we excusing our rejection of what the Lord is saying to us by focusing on some perceived imperfection or some uncomfortable difference in God's messenger? Friends, I think we need to be very careful of that. Uh, we don't like being challenged. We don't like being called on the carpet. And we are very prone to discrediting someone when they do that. Someone can come to us in love. Oh, imperfectly. They may mess it up. They may make a mess of it. But they come to us out of love, out of concern for us to, to challenge us about some issue of sin or compromise in our life but we will find a way to disregard it because of the way they've come to us. We can't do that. We can't do that. We have got to listen to the message and not just discredit the messenger. <coughs> Secondly, are we giving, excuse me, <coughs> I know half of you are wondering if you can catch coronavirus over a web. <coughs> I don't think you can catch the dust that is now lodged in my throat. <coughs> Secondly, are we giving others a good excuse to reject Jesus? You know, Jesus ends what he says here. In verse 35, with a pointed little saying, he says this, Wisdom is vindicated by all her children. What he's saying there is that John was right. 
John gave the right message, and Jesus himself was right. The problem wasn't with them. The religious leaders were determined to find an excuse to reject them. And we can know for sure that if, if people found an excuse to reject the message of Jesus and of John the Baptist, hey, guess what? They are certainly going to find reasons to reject the message of God when you or I speak it to them. The question is, are we making it too easy for them? Are we making it too easy for them to reject the message of God because of our hypocrisy? Because we say one thing and do another? Or because of the fact that though we might do the right things, we're doing them with a lousy heart, a heart full of pride or a heart that is lacking love for those to whom we're speaking? Are we allowing our, our personal idiosyncrasies, our, our personal oddities to upstage the gospel message? Are we keeping people from hearing the very message that we're preaching? You know, it might take asking a very honest friend to get a real answer on this. Is there anything about me? Is there anything about the way that I'm approaching this that is keeping people from hearing the message of God? Dear friends, let's put aside our excuses. Let's put aside our objections to the messengers and let's hear the message of God. Let's hear what it is that he would say to us. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's submit ourselves to him and let's speak his message without hindrance, without anything getting in the way. And let's be certain, be sure that we have done all that we can to be a clear conduit for the message of God. And let's worship him with the living of our lives. And let's obey him in all things. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this opportunity to worship together, to hear your word together. Father, as your word is spoken, I pray that we would hear it. God, I pray that the imperfections of this messenger would not hinder the reception of this message. But God, that you would speak to our hearts that we would hear from you and we would respond to you. God, I pray. I pray that we would be faithful messengers submitted to you and allowing you to speak through us. God, to the best of our ability, that we would speak your message with clarity and without hindrance. And Lord, that you would work in us and through us in the midst of this crazy time in which we live. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.